0: All right, everybody, I found an amazing new product. It's called Magic Mind. Here's why I love Magic Mind. I have always been a coffee drinker, but what's happened over, over the years is I've had to go off coffee because it makes me feel like crap. And I always end up switching to tea for a while to kind of compensate that caffeine withdrawal, right? Like you can't just go off coffee and not have any caffeine At least I could. not So what I have found is matcha has been the tea that has helped me almost get that same benefit of coffee. Now, the reason I love Magic Mind is because it's got a few key ingredients. It's got matcha. It's got adaptogens, which help you feel relaxed. You know how sometimes you get that caffeine rush? It kind of brings you anxiety. Not with this. The adaptogen, like the ashwagandha, help keep you calm. And the nootropics that are in here, which I have used so many different kinds, they help you stay more focused. They help you get more clarity, help you find the words that you need, especially for the podcast interviews like this. I always want to have the most clarity and focus possible. And then, of course, vitamin C, vitamin D, and echinacea for immunity, which is such a great formula. So matcha, adaptogens, nootropics, and immunity all in one little two ounce bottle. I took this right before I recorded this and I already feel the benefits. The reason I like it is because I can get that nice clarity that I get with coffee, but without the crash. That's really the best part of this is that I want to figure out how do I get the most clarity? How can I get the most energy possible without that feeling of the decline that you get with certain caffeines, especially coffee. Now, I want to mention, I also took this with coffee. And what it did is it actually eliminated that crash. So I had that initial buzz from the coffee that you get, you know, that real skyrocket buzz that we all love, but I didn't get the crash. So Magic Mind is great because you can take it with coffee, which will eliminate that the, the decline that you get, it'll keep you on an even keel. Or if you're like me, you're trying to weed off coffee and you want to substitute, this really helps. And it's not just having tea. You get the nootropics and the daptogens and, an and an immunity booster while doing it. So who doesn't want that, right? So you guys, these, this company is great and I'm really happy to share this with you guys. And there's a really awesome offer that you guys got to act on now. Make sure to enter the code UAP20 and go to magicmind.co slash UAP. That's M-A-G-I-C-M-I-N-D dot C-O slash U-A-P. Discount code UAP20. Life is going to give you challenges, struggles. It's going to force you to face your fears. Even though these may feel like your worst enemy, in truth, these are actually your greatest allies. My name is Lance Isios. Welcome to the University of Adversity. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to University of Adversity. I'm your host, Lance Isios. We got a very special episode for you today. We have a good friend of mine that I've wanted to get on the show for a while, probably since I think October, 2020, when I was in Sedona and for Aubrey Marcus's Fit for Service Summit. And we stayed in the same house and I got to know him really well. And he had just come out of rehab and he was just the warmest, best guy ever. And he's just been through so much that it's almost like overwhelming. To hear that he's even alive. So today's episode, we brought him on. It's a short episode. We could only cover so much in 45 minutes, but I plan on bringing him back because what we covered here was only a piece of his amazing story. He's been on Joe Rogan, like I think nine, 10 times. So if you want to learn about more about him after this, go ahead and check him out. And this was just... Such a great conversation and what he's doing in the world is is really amazing. So if you don't know by now, we have the one, the only Justin, the big pygmy Wren joining us. A little bit about him. He's a mixed martial artist, humanitarian, and the founder of the nonprofit Fight for the Forgotten. We talk about this for the majority of the podcast and it's a really an amazing cause. He's a native Texan and a high school wrestling powerhouse who won 10 state championships and was a five-time All-American and two-time national champion, becoming one of the youngest professional MMA athletes at the age of 19. Shortly after he became the youngest heavyweight cast, youngest heavyweight casted on the most watched season ever of the ultimate fighter tv show at 21 years old after battling depression suicide and drug addiction Justin experienced a life-changing journey with the Mbuti Pygmy people of the Congo Basin rainforest when he returned when he returned he founded the fight for the forgotten which we talk about all of that today which was today has expanded their impact to serve the Batwa Pygmies in Uganda and stateside initiatives, including bullying prevention and character development programs for public schools and martial arts academy. We did get into Justin's story with bullying as a kid, and I can resonate with it too, because I was at a certain time as well. And the profound effects that it can have on your development and confidence is really yeah, it's, it's crazy how it can affect you, even if you don't really understand it when it's happening. He's also inspired millions through his appearances on Joe Rogan Experience, as I mentioned. He's been on him a ton of times. Mike Tyson's Hot Boxing, The Ed Milet Show, ESPN, Sports Illustrated, NBC, CBS, and TEDx Talks. Along with his book, Fight for the Forgotten, Today, he's the host of his own inspirational podcast, Overcome with Justin Wren. He's a 15-year veteran, a professional MMA, and Justin is on six-fight winning streak and is currently training at the Onnit Gym in Austin, Texas, where he's doing his thing as he does. So an amazing conversation we had today. And like I said, it's only a part of his story that we want to get into down the road, but for now, this is what we got, 45 minutes of jam-packed action with one of the best dudes around, Justin Wren. Enjoy the episode. My man, what is it? Two and a half years we made this happen. Wow. The one and yeah. only Justin Wren is on the show. Welcome, brother.
1: Hey, thank you so much for having me. there has been technical difficulties, lots of rain here in Austin just, just let up, and I'm really grateful to be here with you, man. You're one of my favorite people.
0: Dude, I thank you and I appreciate it likewise. You got the one of the biggest hearts I've ever seen in a human and what I love about you, bro, is like you you are the real essence of what a warrior is. You know, to me a warrior is somebody that is able to show up and fight for what matters but also able to really get to the level of love, compassion, open heart. And you just, you walk that, man. And it's really, it's amazing to see what you do and what you've been able to do with your mission, what you've been through and now. So, you know, dude, of course, you know, it's, I feel like we're missing that in our society because I feel like there's, there's the one side where these where people are one way, it's all about the fight, but they they don't. They aren't able to like open up and have the love and compassion that I think is missing, or there's somebody that isn't able to stand up in a fight, you know. But and then they are almost like too much on the other side. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah, I
1: I do know what you mean. I feel like I feel like it was a learned. Well, it, it was an innate trait that I stuff because through that, through being kind-hearted and maybe sweet, when and and then. On that kind of, I don't know if you call it shadow side or the weakness of of that can be being taken advantage of or being an easy target. Or for me, it was being timid, tentative, hesitant, not sure of myself growing up from third to eighth grade, really, really tragically, horribly bullied. And, you know, I was a kind-hearted kid that then whenever that happened, I was crushed. And because of that, I spiraled into depression Clinically depressed, I think, by a doctor at, at in seventh grade. So 12 years old. But it was before that, I was a shell of myself as I was a kid, like as a, I don't know, kindergarten, first grade. I, I was pretty happy. And then second grade, I would say I got bullied by a teacher. I went to a private school that had corporal punishment. So they were allowed to paddle you, but wow. it went beyond that. They would, I've never shared this story, I don't think, but. She'd grab my face, throw me to the ground, smack me, leave bruises on me. And if I told my parents how I got these bruises on my neck, I would be like, I would say the teacher, and then she'd say I got in a fight at school and she paddled me. And the fight was where the bruises came. I'd never been in a fight until third grade. So they transferred me out of that school. actually ran away from that school, scared of that teacher. Dallas-Fort Worth helicopters were going, looking for me because I was missing until the middle of the night. I walked like six miles away from my school. And then third to eighth grade, I think I carried that trauma with me. And then third to eighth grade, I sat at the lunch table by myself, pelted in the back of the head with chocolate milk spit wads or food or fist. And then in eighth grade, it kind of came to a point where I went to a costume party that wasn't really a costume party. I showed up, dressed up, and was dressed up as a Dr. Pepper Transformer. It's going to be Optimus Prime or Dr. Optimus Prime or something like that. Dr. Prime. And I get to the party and when the door opens up I'm cameras are flashing, people are laughing, my eyes adjust, I'm the only one dressed up. And my middle school crush, crushed me saying, can't believe you thought you're good enough to come to my party. And then a kid named Tyler said, you're worthless. And then the kid that orchestrated it all, that was bullying me literally from third to eighth grade and did something very similar in seventh grade, different, but, but similar in front of the whole school said, you should just kill yourself. So at 13, you believe the things people say about you or you're more inclined to. And I thought I had a a repetitive cycle in my head. And then later in my story, when addiction comes and other things, it would be on repeat, but it was my own voice. It was their voices and my voice. I can't believe you thought you're good enough. Of course you're not. You're worthless. You should just kill yourself. And so it led to two suicide attempts. And, you know, but, but being that young, going back to the warrior side of it, about a month after that party, I found the UFC on VHS tape. And I thought these guys don't get, that was the first thing that drew me to it was these guys don't get bullied. Wow. And then when I started watching it, I fell in love. Absolutely in love. It was my My only childhood dream was to be in the UFC or be an MMA fighter. And it was, oh, this is like a human chess match. Like it's, it's not just a barroom brawl. It's not a street fight. It is disciplined. It's skilled. It's all this stuff. And a guy asked me earlier, he saw my magazine. He was flying in from Las Vegas and he saw a magazine and it was me on it. It's the black belt magazine. And I guess it's still on shelves. And and it just came out like as your second to last issue but I'm in the Black Belt Magazine Hall of Fame now. And these are guys that I, I was buying that magazine when I was a kid, hoping wow. that I could just be one of them. Not not be on the magazine, but be one of them. But through martial arts, I, I found self-discipline, but also self-respect and self-confidence. So it, I think that warrior side of it, what you learned from jujitsu, wrestling, I was a 10-time state champion in Texas, a five-time All-American, was a two-time national champion in wrestling.
0: It's unbelievable.
1: And thanks, bro. When I walked on the mats, though, the first first year, I lost every match, except one. I won by one point. Heavyweights get sweaty. I swear that guy slipped in a were pile you, of
0: were you sweat. Were you a big dude at this point, or were you still kind of like, what was? So in middle school, I, I didn't
1: have a growth spurt. I don't know what a wide spurt would be. I was I just was chunky.
0: Okay, so you're just big dude. And,
1: yeah, big dude, they'd pull my shirt up, give me the pink bellies, twist my nipples till they bled. Fuckers. And, and so with that, I, I had a growth spurt in freshman year, and then I would go on the mats, timid, tentative, hesitate. I would telegraph every move I was going to attempt because these guys have more experience. They're bigger, stronger. Am I really good enough? What am I trying to do? These guys. What, whatever the story was I was telling myself, but then I had two Olympic gold medalists say, Hey, you're learning from the best and you're not learning bad habits. I I was very gifted or was given a gift in these two amazing athletes and people to guide me early in my career to where, when I finally flipped the switch where they said, look, you're trying these moves, but they know it's coming. Just do it. Just give it a, a go. Just believe in it. Believe in yourself. Believe in, if you don't even believe in yourself, believe in us. You know we've done it. So now you go do it. And so I went from losing every match except one to then I went into a tournament in Oklahoma as a Texas kid that didn't wrestle until high school. And these kids have been doing it their whole life. And it was the Southern Plains kids from Kansas all over Nebraska. And I went in there in Missouri, which are all good wrestling states. And I just try one move, the lateral drop straight to their back. And instead of the guys falling on top of me, which was happening every time, pinning me, all of a sudden I was throwing them to their back and pinning them and I won the tournament by all by pins and everyone's like, where'd this kid come from? And so I think through the sport of wrestling and jujitsu and martial arts, martial arts changed my life. And through that, like the, a black belt or a coach, they learned to give it away. Like it's it's a life of service. Once you learn something, you want your training partners to know it, or you want the up and coming guys to know it because it makes you better. If if you give it to them and then they know what you're trying to do and you're still able to do it, now you're getting better and they're getting better. And so make them better, you get better. And you want everyone to rise together. And so that's what I've learned from pro pro sports is the guys that actually give away the most knowledge He's a guy named Gordon Ryan right now that I train with. He's got the most tutorials anyone's ever made. He makes seven figures on his tutorials. Any opponent he competes against, same with Nicholas Marigali, who's also a training partner of his. One's the greatest in the gi, one's the greatest no gi, and they have the greatest of all times coach. And so three goats all training together, exchanging knowledge, giving the other person all their tools, all of them and they're publicizing it to the world. Any opponent can go watch every single thing they're ever going to do. And they do. They go watch it. They study it. They study that opponent and they still can't beat them. And so that to me is, it's about give it away and you're only going to get better. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's transitioned a lot to me overcoming the bullying at first, which still has been a trauma that's come up even in the last couple of years. But now I can tell the story without crying. Or without like it, 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 feeling it, yeah. Like now, I'm happy to share it. And there's yeah. been a shift in me these last couple of years sharing it because I think I've started to allow myself to receive the feedback from others that have been through the same thing right. and saying how it gives them gave them hope. I had a a guy in his 60s come up to me, all white hair, and he was he was bawling, and he put his head on my shoulder, hugging me, and and my. Sure, it was light blue. It turned kind of dark blue from where his tears were. I didn't notice until after he left. I was like, holy smokes, this guy was able to tell somebody else that's been through the same thing for one of the first times. And he said, I've stuffed this, I've stuffed this, I've stuffed this. And I go, dude, I was the best at that. But as I start letting the story out now, I don't know, there's been this shift where I'm like, hey, hopefully my story can give someone else hope. And hopefully I can talk to a kid, or a, a grandfather. And if they've been through it, they can know they can get through it without taking their own life. Heard a story two days ago about a little girl, 11 years old, 11 years old. And she was bullied, but she had these like videos. Her mom was making these videos of her saying how she wants to just treat people with kindness, that bullying's not okay, that we're all here for a reason, that you have a purpose, all this stuff. She was beat up at school. They filmed it. They posted it. She took her life. She's 11. And it's like, man, we, we've got to do better. If you've been through something, whatever it is, in everything you talk about, overcoming adversity, like how do we rise up and overcome? Well, it's by sharing how we did it and giving others hope. And for me, it's transitioned into a nonprofit. I've been doing this last 12 years. but. I was bullied, but there's the most bullied people in the world, anthropologists found the most oppressed people, at least in Africa, but traditionally or historically, suffered genocide, slavery, literal cannibalism, all sorts of oppression, no land rights, kicked out of their ancestral homes, no clean water, denied medical treatment. I buried a young boy, one and a half years old, because he was denied hospital treatment. He was told, his mom was told, you're too dirty to come in here. You, the second time they had the money, it was $1 for the pills. It was $3 for the one-shot cure. And when they came back with the money that they had to beg for, because they were enslaved, they don't get paid the money. They had a chicken. They had two dozen eggs or an, over a dozen. They had a bag of charcoal and firewood. They gave everything basically the village to come up with. I'm talking up to 185 people, they put it on the doorsteps of the hospital. And the doctor said, we won't waste our medicine on a pygmy animal and turned them away to die. His slave master said, it's cheaper to bury him. I asked him "Why, why, why won't you even take care of him? he's like, you're saying he's your property. Like, isn't it better for business or better for you if, if you Keep these people at least help them. And he goes, No, it's cheaper to bear them than to keep them alive. And I, I was, I was mad. I was seeing red. Thank God I had some martial arts like training to like know how to like control those emotions. Yeah. Because I wanted to tear his head off. And like, but I was holding the shovel that was $6 from the market. And I'm like, yeah. It was $6 for the shovel. It was $30 for the casket. It's $1 for the pills, $3 for the shot. That's not true. It's not cheaper to bury him than to keep him alive. And, and I dug his grave and, and my team did that too. I don't want to sound like, I don't know, like pretentious or anything, but that was like the, the moment in my life that like changed everything where I was digging his grave, having blisters on my hand, basically like digging. It was more wrestling with the earth. It wasn't like a good spot to, to, to bury someone. You're hitting rocks and all sorts of stuff. And I just, I'm a big guy. And so I'm like, I'm not going to let them after a hard day labor or, or in grieving and grief and mourning, like dig this whenever I'm Kate. And so that funeral like has forever stuck with me to where when I got back home, it was culture shock of like going to, he would die of waterborne disease. So going to the, yeah. the sink, taking yeah. a piss toilet, giving my dog water, turning on the sprinkler.
0: The gratitude you must have for that. Oh Just my gosh, like,
1: the gratitude and, and at, 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 at a time, an unhealthy guilt, right. that, at le- that at least I was able to turn into something. Because I didn't know how to drill wells or anything like that, but I started to learn. I started watching YouTube videos DIY, or there's a website, How to Drill Your Own Well and I was trying to do that in my parents' backyard. Wow! Just saying, you know what? If 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 someone can do it, then we can teach them how to do it.
0: What and so, what oh. what inspired you to do that in the first place? Like, how did that come up in that okay. spot specifically? Like, how did that all Great question. unfold?
1: Great question. So I was. Going through addiction, and when I came out of it, I just thought, you know what, I've never volunteered for anything in my entire life. Actually, that's not true. My, my mom's best friend had, her son had Down syndrome, so I got involved in the Special Olympics at a young age. And I loved I loved that, but I got disconnected from that service. You know, it was all about self-serving selfishly whenever it was became a profession. And so I get my hand raised and I would think, is this it, is this all, what am I doing all this for? I mean, I loved the sport, but at the business side of it and then not being able to enjoy it because I'm addicted to Oxycontin after a surgery, and using the week of fight week, knowing if I get caught, I'm suspended for a year or two and not being able to break free from it. So whenever I finally was able to have like a pattern interrupt, saying, what the fuck am I doing? I've got to stop this and I've got to, how do I do that? Just something in me said, just start volunteering at the children's hospital. So I started doing that. Good got injured and was a fan for me being on the ultimate fighter. And his dad reached out. He'd be encouraged if he came by the hospital. So I did. And he didn't even know I was there cause he had a brain, a traumatic brain injury from a four wheeling accident. But then we started getting into jujitsu jiu- after he started healing. And then, and then I started volunteering there, the Denver rescue mission the, for the homeless, the inner city youth group. And it was kind of scattered. I was just doing anything and everything and I wasn't making any money. And, and I had sacrificed a year from fighting. Just saying, I'm going on some sort of like build a new foundation, some sort of soul journey, some sort of getting outside of myself, stop this selfish shit, do something with my life that matters, which was weird because like people could be applauding and I could feel all, all alone or people could be wanting pictures and I'd be
0: like, why would you want a picture with me? Did you feel you know? like a lack of self-worth? You're like, why, why do you care what I do? Like. Is that what you mean? Like you felt like Um, unworthy. I think
1: that was definitely there. But I also thought like, if I could explain it now with hindsight, it would be, I was fighting against people, but man, I'm here to fight for people. Right. And, and I think something was Like I had this urge or this tug at my heart that like, I heard this quote and it's, what would you do if you knew you could not fail? What would you do if you knew you could not fail? And then I kind of, internalized that and, and, and changed it to, you know, what great impact would I make if I only knew I could, what impact, what, what difference would I make in the lives of others? If, if I just believed I could, or if I, if I, if I, if it wasn't about money or if it wasn't about fame, if it wasn't about the car, the house, um, the status, whatever, what, what would I do? And it's like, man, I would try to make the world better or try to make a difference in someone's life. So I started that and then I just wanted more direction. So honestly, man, I wasn't, I didn't pray much and I just finally said a prayer. God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do with my life? And all I can say was I, I didn't know at all if I would get an answer. But, but I was hungry to hear something from the universe. And from that, I had the most vivid vision of my entire life. More than ayahuasca, more than DMT, more than Bufo, more than psilocybin, really? more than any of that. It was a vision in my mind that felt, you know those dreams where you wake up and you think, wait, wait was that real? You can't really yeah. tell a difference, like you think it actually happened? Yeah. Is that real of a visualization? Well, this was me not trying to conjure anything up. It wasn't me going into like fight mode, thinking about the fight beforehand, what I want to see happen. It was just, what do I do with my life? And I saw myself in the forest, some rainforest. I was walking down a footpath, heard drumming, heard singing. I was clearing, clearing thickets out of my way or like moving the brush. And then when I came into this clearing, I saw these twig and leaf huts. And they were in the shape of domes. And I see this guy. And we acknowledge each other. We don't communicate. But I see that his ribs, I can count his ribs. So I know he's starving. He kind of looked like a skeleton with skin on. And he was coughing. And I just had this knowledge. He and them are hungry, thirsty, poor, sick, oppressed, and enslaved. It just flooded me. I knew it. And then... I came out of that vision with the word forgotten. Like I saw the word forgotten in my mind. I'm very visual, but like, I just started to weep, weep. Like i never have at a funeral, never have at all the funerals combined. After any heartbreak, I've never cried like this where I was hyperventilating, crying, basically like trying to catch my breath and like, and just weeping. And I cried a little, I don't know, puddle of tears that was like, uh, I don't know, like grandma sized cookie of like, just tears on the ground all together. And i thought, who are they? Where are they? And then I thought I'm crazy. Like, Oh, do I just have some sort of psychedelic reactivation or and I'm 10 months sober and did I have some sort of psychotic episode? Like, what was that? Am I crazy? What am I seeing? How was that so real? It felt like I was there. Wow. I knew it was in my mind, but it felt like it was an out-of-body experience like I was there. And so to s- get through that, I, I, I sit on it for three days. Then I meet a guy named Caleb, and he had been buddies with Bears, Bear grills. He had been like a survivalist guy. He had lived with the Maasai tribe that they traditionally hunt lions. He had lived with the Vanuatu tribe that invented bungee jumping. I'm just like, wait, what? Who is this guy? And something in me told me i gotta tell him i gotta tell him i gotta tell him throughout his whole story and then i was getting in a car with friends driving another way they start the car and I go, guys wait i gotta go tell this guy something i thought i was just gonna get his number so i tell him i can i get your number he's like why do you have something to tell me I'm like yeah so he's like well tell me i live down the street i can go see my wife in a minute so i tell him the vision by the end of it he's smiling or like nodding he was nodding his head through it and then he smiled and I go, well, what? He goes, I know who they are. And I said, what? Oh. He goes, they're the Pikmi people. And I said, who? And he goes, they're in the Congo Basin Rainforest. And I'm like, where? And uh, he goes, I'm going, and I'm supposed to go in three and a half weeks. And then he and they told me all the crazy stuff about their suffering, the current genocide, the current cannibalism, the current slavery. And I was like, what? And he goes, yeah, and three days ago, When I had this vision, his team canceled their trip. The U S state department said, don't go there for any reason. The rebels took over the airport. So how are you going to get there? And he's saying all this crazy stuff. I go, well, maybe you should wait. And he's like, no, if you go, I'll go. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm supposed to go. And he goes, if you don't go, you'll never know. I always wonder what coulda, shoulda, woulda happened. And he's like, but I need you to do something. Get in my car or his truck. He goes, come tell my wife. Because yesterday she said, if you don't get a sign, you're not going And so we go over and meet Jess. She's pregnant. She has a toddler. And I tell her the story. And she looks at Caleb and says, you got to take this guy. And I'm like, do we have to go now? Can we delay the trip? Can we go whenever it calms down? And all these things happened to make it very real. I was supposed to go. A guy I knocked out in a fight. My plane ticket. A guy I knocked out bought my round trip plane ticket to go. I made a post on Facebook. He calls, says, what's the, you know, have you booked your trip yet? I mean, not yet. He goes, we're buying your ticket. I said, what? Wow. So it's a tight knit community. You know, someone like, like you've never known anybody else. Once you get in there, you develop a friendship afterwards most times. And so I go with Caleb and my buddy Colin, we land on a grass runway that they were literally clearing with machetes as we're trying to land that we're circling. Monkeys are on the runway too. It's, it's just crazy. We get out, we drive like six, eight hours. We get on motorcycles. We get on a pygmy sized dugout canoe, which isn't big pygmy size. Like I thought it was going to flip or capsize. And we walk about 30 minutes and we're drumming. We're clearing thickets out of the way. We are singing. Keep walking. We come up into a clearing. And the guy standing there, first guy I meet, you can count his ribs. He's coughing. He has tuberculosis. They tell us stories of how they're hungry, thirsty, poor, sick, oppressed, enslaved. Their slave masters came up and said, what are you doing with my property? I own these people. And yeah. everything verbatim. I wrote the vision down. It was in my backpack on my back. So I'm like taking a knee, thinking what in the world does stuff like this happen? Yeah, Surely it doesn't. Surely it doesn't. I've been here. I've seen this. It was the biggest, if you can call it a day job, it was so surreal. And Caleb and Colin were jacked. I mean, so pumped. And I was just confused. And we stayed with them for a few weeks and, and this was 12 years ago, 2011. And then by the end of the trip, I'm like, guys, I don't know what to do. And they're saying they need land, water, food. What am, what are we going to do? they like, no, what are you going to do? I'm like, yeah, what am, what am I going to do? Nothing. I can't do anything here. And they thought I was crazy, but I go, look, if I get one more sign, I'm, I'm in. I'm like, what do you mean one more sign? You had a vision. It came true. And I know I can sound crazy to people listening. It's, it's okay. No, if no, no, we uh, talk about all
0: kinds of crazy shit on here. Don't worry.
1: Oh, man. And so that day I asked them that. They think I'm crazy but they go, well, maybe it'll happen. And the chief pulls aside and says, everyone else calls us the forest people, but we call ourselves the forgotten. We don't, and that was the thing that was boldened at the top, forgotten. Well, so I start getting teary-eyed and he says, we don't have a voice, can you help us have one? You. And, and, and his hand is like, it's all together, but it's pointing at me. And Kaelin Colin look at me and I say, yes, Cause that's the one thing I could do, help them have a voice buddies with podcasters fighting, have a platform, whatever, any American has free speech. So I'm like, I can talk about what's going on. Here. So I said, yes, came back, went back, Andy Bo died. We buried him or I did. And I was on a solo trip and, but we built a team and then it just, I think, I think people will be presented if you're open. And if you're aware, or at least open to the awareness that like, there might be something more, whatever that is, might be in your local community, might be in your own family, it might be for your state, your country, it might be across the world. But if you just have an openness and a willingness, and if you're honest with yourself, I believe there's these moments that are pivotal, pivotal, pivotal in everyone's moment or everyone's life. To like say yes or no to some sort of calling, some sort of purpose. And it can start small and it can build from there. Mine started at children's hospital, or it started at the Special Olympics. Didn't see my mom do Big Brother's Big Sister, then the children's hospital, then the homeless rescue mission, and then and then something happened wild. I know it's wild. I don't know that everyone will have a moment like that, but I think, I think if you just look to put love and compassion in action and fight for people that's something's going to happen if you just have your head on a swivel looking to make some sort of difference. Well, it's the guy on the side of the street. And I've had a moment, and this isn't about me, but it's, a, it's something people can do. A guy asked me for money. I told him, all, all I've got is a debit card. He goes, you do not got anything for me? And but the group I was with, two, two guys, they walked across the street while he was trying to talk to me or us. And i just looked him in the eyes for a minute and I was thinking, what can I give this guy? And all of a sudden he hit me. I put my hands out, arms wide open. And I go, bro, I got a hug. And he looked at me and then he smiled and gave me the biggest hug, biggest hug and he goes, you don't know how much I needed that. And I'm like, you know, that didn't cost anything. It costed a few seconds, you know, and I'm like, hey man, I hope hope you're you're doing all right. Hope things turn out okay. I can't do much for you. And he goes, You did you did exactly what I needed. Wow. And I'm just like, wow. Guy probably you hasn't know? got a
0: hug in in decades.
1: Yeah. Who knows? And uh, so those moments are there. We just gotta be aware. And, and so mine has turned into something now that's an official nonprofit. And I didn't know about starting a 501c3. I didn't know all it entails. I didn't know the business side. I didn't know how to ask anyone for money. I'm still learning that because it's awkward. But I know that the project we have, the people we serve, are some of the most amazing, incredible people. They just need a fighting chance. A fighting chance to be on a similar level to the poorest people in the nation, not, not trying to get them to the first world or to... Elon Musk, but just try to get them on an even playing field. To like, why don't they have land? Why don't they have water? Why don't they have food? Why are they treated like shit? And it's like, can't we find a, a piece of land for them to live on? So now we've got over three thousand acres of land. Amazing. We've done eighty-two water wells. It's it's and, and big water towers and serving more than fifty thousand people. And that started from trying to drill well in my parents' backyard and everything breaking. And, and then it's giving them the tools to do it for themselves and to maintenance it and to keep it going and to build homes and start farms. And now our next initiative is this year, we're going to break ground on building a hospital and a school. And the hospital is going to be open to all the Batwa Pygmy people on the border of Congo in Uganda, they have 50 acres of land for themselves. They're farming today. I got updates earlier this morning, the rains came, they're planting. I just got back from a trip. We were giving them the seeds and and the tools to do it, but you know, they just want an opportunity and they're not asking for charity. They're asking for like, not a handout, a hand up, like, Hey, we'll do this. We just need some of the resources to do it.
0: Yeah, man, it's such a beautiful thing that you're doing and. You know, it must, does, does it drive you crazy when you hear people complaining in North America really about shit that doesn't matter? Does it, does it bother you? Because like after hearing that, it just makes everything else seem so fucking insignificant sometimes. Like the shit that we, we complain about, like, does it bother me? can yeah, and like it, the perception. it used
1: to it used to a lot more, but and I realized like that's you know I can't I can't spend my energy getting ready to complain about their complaint totally, you know? and, yeah. and 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 we all do have real shit you know like yeah. I mean, moments where rent's hard to pay and and you know there's bills and there's stuff and so it we're all having this human experience and yeah. we'll all have our own perception. And so, yeah, I mean, there was a moment that drove me crazy after I buried Andy Bell. I came home and I was at the Atlanta airport and I go to Popeye's chicken because I wanted some fried chicken. And I get there and there's a mom and daughter arguing at the like soda or Coke stand. And she's trying to drink a Coke. She fills up her glass with sugar water, Coke. And she takes a sip and her mom says, no, empty that out, get water. You're not drinking Coke before we go to Haiti. They had a mission shirt on Haiti, 2012. And she's like, no mom, they don't have Coke in Haiti, which I think Coke is out further than I don't know, the gospel or something yeah. it's everywhere. Yeah. And, and they get in this argument and her daughter drinks it anyways. Her mom goes, you're grounded. She goes, what? She drinks another sip. Now you're grounded two weeks. And she literally walked out of that Popeye's in the terminal. Slammed her Coke inside the trash can that has a flipping door. And so the Coke goes everywhere. She throws it in there, and goes, turns back around and goes, I hate you, mom. And I was just like, in my head, I was just, I wanted to lovingly put my hands on their back and bring them together and go, no, like love each other. This is over sugar water. You're saying the word hate, you know, she's grounded, all this stuff. And, and I don't I didn't want to shame them, but like there's kids being buried over dirty water, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's some moments that can, that can, that can round me up, but that was, you know, 11 years ago. Yeah. And now it's like, you know what, like just love on people and try to share perspective. And
0: yeah, from
1: that, people will say, oh, you know what? I've actually got a really good life. I've, yeah. I've, I've got a lot to be grateful for.
0: Do you, when you go over there, what, how do they, like, obviously they receive you well, but how does everybody else, like, do you ever fear safety? Like, do you get treated? Like, how do you get treated when you arrive there? Cause I'm in my head. I'm like, okay, what would that be like? Is that a scary feeling? Cause you're in this crazy different country completely. I think,
1: I think I have adjusted to it really well. Yeah. One, I think I'm never armed and don't ever have armed guards or anything, but knowing that I can protect myself pretty easily unless they have a gun. Now, I have been held at gunpoint and that's been terrifying. And I've taken women or at least four women to the hospital after they've been like, one was tied to a tree and gang raped and what? some, some awful, awful things. But there's been some like verbal aggression, but I handle that really well. I smile. I, I, I just talk calmly. And, uh, but, for the most part, now everywhere we are, we're seen as actual allies and advocates and different than a traditional NGO that it's kind of a show up, blow up, blow out technique where they announce their arrival with a parade and they throw a party and they get their pictures and they leave and they never come back. And so through relationship of over more than a decade, and I, I adjusted quick and I lived with them, like them. Slept in the towing leaf huts, ate the food, didn't have a toilet for a full year. Didn't have running water. All, I showered from a bucket on the ground or in a river. And and I think from that, I'm seen as like, well, the big pygmy, one of them and and like a brother and an a, a allied advocate of their neighbors who either are currently oppressing them or used to oppress them. And we help them get clean water too, which is life, which is life saving, life changing. You think about a woman can't go to work because she has to go collect water. You think about a kid that can't go to school because they have to collect water. Now their kid can go to school. Their wife can go to work. They can be a double income family. They're not losing half their income. We did a survey and a study that showed the people in that region were spending about $165 on average a year on waterborne disease treatment, taking the pills with dirty water. So just to survive, you to actually get well. And so now they can take those pills to get the stuff finally out of their body with clean water. So it's just a complete paradigm shift. Like we don't think about how much time average woman is walking two to three hours a day to collect water. The village I just came back from was six hours, six hours to go get water every day. That's half your day. Yeah. So being able to provide those resources, our next project is with the hospital and the school is gonna be a water reservoir. Now, normally a water well is about 10,000. This water reservoir is probably gonna be 100,000, but it's worth it because the people are scaling mountains. Women, have, women and children have fallen and died in this mountainous region in the rainforest because they're literally doing the most grueling trek I've ever seen in my entire life. I did that with them. And it was harder than Kilimanjaro. It was harder than the two 14ers I climbed in Colorado and I was just like, how do you do this? And then the, the men I was dealing with, they're like, yeah, our, our, wife, our, our wives and our children do this. And I'm like, what? I thought it was only you. I didn't think any women and children could do this. And they're like, to the first water point and the second water point and kind of 2.5, the women and children can. When those points are dry, they have to walk all the way up to the third water point, which I walked by at least 10 beehives that are killer beehives on this footpath that you're scaling cliffs. And I was just like, this is crazy. We've got to, we've got to do more here. So the water reservoir will distribute all through the mountain community to over 3,000 people, making sure they have water taps, water points at their homes and outside of clusters of homes and the medical center. We've got the best partners in the world. So we're currently raising funds for that. If we can raise $1.2 million, which dude, $10 goes a long way there. So if anyone can donate anything, it's fightfortheforgotten.org. If you can join our monthly giving club that, that like compounds and we can scale and grow and budget and know, know what we have to spend. But if we can raise 1.2 million for the hospital, the school, a community gathering place, which will also have a market, so business and economy, it's like 1.2 million for like an actual like, I don't know, like community development project that goes far beyond what, what we can actually kind of wrap our minds around. But it will unlock $2.5 million of medical supplies to do a maternity ward, a pediatrics unit, a dental suite, all the buildings of all the stuff. So this is my biggest year of fundraising, but I think it's by far the biggest impact I could ever make and our organization could ever make. And hopefully anyone that gives would feel that too, that this, this is, this matters.
0: Oh, bro. It's such a big project so awesome man thank you for your service to the world bro like honestly like it's you know it's so beautiful what you're doing and i'm just you know honored to know you and love you you, bro i i really appreciate it we're gonna have to do a round two of this because yeah there's so much to talk to you about i know that we got pressed for time but yeah um,
1: but i i think i think right before we jumped on we're having technical difficulties there's rain it took me a little while to get here so we'll do a part two but I think one of the things you you said beforehand that reminded me it was like man there's purpose in your pain whatever it is you can you can find purpose in your pain and like those two suicide attempts I didn't want to be here anymore and after that second one I was just like this isn't when I woke up to a gasp because I should have overdosed and died I went out and watched the most beautiful sunrise of my entire
0: life. I was like, holy shit, I'm alive. And this happens every day, this sunrise.
1: Like this happens every day. And a sunset happens twice a day. This beautiful painted canvas I get to watch every day. And I I was just grateful for the breath in my lungs and grateful for the beating heart in my chest. And like that day I decided like, this isn't the way I go out. Like I'm here to stay as long as I'm supposed to be here. And like, there's still, there's still work to do. And I work on myself and obviously, and, and a lot of good work to do in the world. So that, that's my only encouragement to anyone listening to this is like, there's still more to do. Like you're here for a reason, a purpose, like let that light you up and, and, and go light up the world, go light up your community, your family, your friends. Like, smile, ask them how they're doing, but for real. And when they ask you how you're doing, say, I'm, I'm fired up. Like, I'm grateful to be here. Today's a gift. Like, like, holy shit, I'm alive. And we get to put love and compassion in action. Like, how, how, how awesome is today? Like, really, we're here on this spinning rock in space. And this time, no one else is here right now. I mean, I know there's 8 billion people, but it's like, you are having your human experience now. Like, we get, we get to make it count and it doesn't mean to put pressure on you, but like, let it be like, uh, God, it sounds really cheesy. Like when beneath your sails or whatever, like, <laughs> like let that push you forward and, and, and just let that be your guide. Like where, where, where can I put love and compassion in action? How can I build better lives? How can I fight for people? How can I make a difference and an impact and just ending with this? Like if I could ask. Anyone listening to this is going through a hard time. It's like, what, what would you do? What difference would you make? What great impact could you have if you only knew you could? Go do that. Go do that. I love you, bro. You're doing it, and I'm inspired you, to know you.
0: Thank you, brother. The biggest heart. I'm the Viking. The, the, it's so funny because when you look at you, you see this guy, this like Viking with this beard and his hair, you got the biggest heart and the kindest soul, bro. Thank you so much. Love I it. really appreciate it. I love you, bro. Love you too. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Justin Wren. Make sure you follow him on social media and go support his cause, Fight for the Forgotten. All the links are below. It's an amazing cause and as you heard in this, in this story, these people really need our help and it would mean a lot. So go ahead if you feel called to do so, support it and follow him on social media, get involved in his world. He does some great things. All right. Thanks everybody. If you aren't subscribed to the podcast, subscribe wherever you're listening to this and share it with somebody that needs it. Thanks everybody. Catch you next time.